Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings, from premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts. Start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market. Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else. Even those who aren't actively searching for a new job but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. Hello and welcome to Work It, the podcast all about entrepreneurs who happen to be women, hosted by me, journalist Angelica Malin, in collaboration with Work Life. This is the last episode of this season and I am joined today by Pornabelle, who is a fantastic journalist and author and I'm going to be talking to her all about her career, how she got to where she is, the process of writing a book and her tips for aspiring young journalists. I really enjoyed recording this episode and I hope you will too. Today by Paul Nobel. Thank you so much for joining me. Can you tell me a little bit about your career? So you're a journalist and an author. Um, can you tell me about your career and where, how you got to where you are now? I've been working in journalism for about 15 years. And when I was thinking about the, you know, when you think about the entirety of a career, it is actually, there's a lot to kind of factor in because I think initially I started out in journalism and I thought, okay, you know, I'm going to be a writer. I'm going to publish books. This is just temporary. Mm. And then, um, as anyone will tell you, that's actually quite difficult to do. And I really fell in love with journalism. So I think the first 10 years of that was definitely just throwing myself into working across, uh, magazines, newspapers, websites. And the last five years have been uh, a bit of a step change in terms of my career, in terms of the seniority of what I was doing. Um, and definitely like a much bigger focus on digital. And the last couple of years have been branching out into also writing books mm. at the same time. Which was always the goal at the start. It was, but it's funny because now that I've got here and I am working on my second book, which is coming out next year, I couldn't really envisage only doing one thing. Mm. So I couldn't envisage only being a an author. Um, journalism, I think, is a massive part of what feeds into me being an author and just keeps things quite current and quite moving. And as much as I love writing books, it's a very solitary, insular practice. Mm. So yeah, I think <laughs> it's probably healthier that I keep both in my life. To have all those plates spinning and, and different experiences. You must have seen a lot of change in the magazine and journalism industry in the time that you've been working as a journalist. Have you, was it, did you start doing more print work? So I started out in print. Um, so that would have been, oh my God, I'm giving my age away. This would have been in 2002. So straight when I came out of university. And at that point, digital wasn't really a, you know, it wasn't an option. You didn't have social media. 
So I went straight into a local newspaper and then transitioned into magazines. And it was not even a monthly magazine. It was a quarterly. So the lead times were particularly long. And then did that for about three or four years, but realized that it was quite, it was quite a niche magazine. So it was a magazine that looked at Asian communities and women and bridal wear, which is, you know, fairly niche. Mm. Um, and especially back then when you didn't really have representation as much in the entertainment industry as you do now. And I just decided that I needed to kind of expand my skill set and work in mainstream journalism. So I made the transition into papers again. And then that pattern continued for the next few years where I moved between uh, papers and magazines and then finally decided to make that full-time transition into digital because that seemed to be where things were going really. And that's where growth, like looking at journalism as an industry, that's where um, the opportunity for, you know, just being different or innovative and growth seemed to seem to lie yeah did you find mm. that transition from a more niche magazines to mainstream difficult did you was it okay finding a job in the mainstream media more well I had actually decided to go freelance so at the time it was it was a combination of a friend that I knew who I worked with at this magazine knew uh, a mate who worked at um, this newspaper and um, and basically said why don't you just meet him for a coffee and I'd already handed my notice in and I decided that you know I just couldn't do that job any longer and therefore by the skin of my teeth within about a week of having handed my notice and I managed to get another job. In terms of environment, it was completely different. So it was a baptism of fire in Mm. that the magazine that I had worked for, you know, was so tiny, it didn't really even have it. No, sorry, it didn't really have it didn't have a HR department, for example, and you got paid by check. Mm. So to go from that to a newspaper that was owned by News Corp was Mm. a very different environment um, and taught me a lot. It presumably had a lot more structure in place as well. It had a lot more structure. The environment, if I'm being very honest with you, was a lot more unkind. So the magazine that I had worked for, it drove me mad on so many different levels, but it was a family-run business. And so there was a lot of flexibility around working hours and you could just have conversations without worrying about stepping on eggshells. Moving to a corporation after something like that, you felt that, especially at that age, so I think I would have been about 26, you felt that there were bigger things going on in the background that would inevitably trickle down and impact you, Mm. but you had zero control over what that was going to be. And I think the way that I was managed, particularly in that job, when I look back on it now, actually, that for me was a really definitive point in time, because I just thought, you know what, if I ever become a manager, that is specifically not how Mm. I want to be managed. Teaching you how not to do it. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. And so how long in total have you been freelance? Uh, Do you mean freelance currently at the moment? Yeah. Oh, like literally six months. Okay. (laughs) I mean, I have been freelance at a previous point in my career. So this was uh, for about two years. And this was uh, very cleverly timed with the recession that was Mm. in 2008. And it was horrendous because people were really clamping down on their budgets. And it was very, it was a very difficult time. And I had just gone freelance at, um, at too early a stage in my career, but I had basically chosen to go freelance, not because it was the right career move, but because I found being in an office environment really challenging and really difficult. However, Going freelance this time round was a very, stru- I did it in a very structured way. It was uh, planned 
every inch of it was completely planned out. And I decided to do it at a point where my contacts and my network and just the people that I was plugged into in the organizations mm. was at a much more advanced level than when I'd done it about uh, 10 years ago. And so it's touch wood, it has been going well so far. Yeah, well, that's amazing. Yeah. I suppose it's that having that base to work from where you know people and people are going to commission you. I think go, just going mm. out into the world from university as a freelancer is, is just too hard. Yeah. I think also just looking at yourself as a business. So one of the most valuable things that my last role taught me, which is where I was working as executive editor for HuffPost, was that it wasn't just a journalism job. It put me in contact with lots of different areas of a business. So you could see how an actual business was run versus Mm -hmm. just your editorial output. And I think what that taught me in terms of transferring what I had learned there was that I had to see freelancing as a business. So Mm -hmm. for example, in any business, you don't just have one source of revenue or income. So as much as I would love to just write for a living, that's not necessarily going to be sustainable. And it places a lot of the power balance in the hands of commissioning editors and other people. So my biggest learning in the last 10 years since when I went freelance was what elements can I control around my freelance career and um, and what can't I control? And then to just work out how you can mitigate some of the stuff that you can't control Whereas what I've learned this time around is actually launching my own things and launching my own products or services gives me an element of control that's not just dependent on mm. an editor saying, yes, okay, that look, that sounds like a great idea. Can you please write that? Yeah. And also you're not, you're not so beholden to industry changes. If the money in one area suddenly dries up, you have your own services and your own things that you're kind of promoting. So you're not just, if they suddenly get rid of all the budgets, you're not completely screwed. Absolutely. Yeah. yeah. Did you find that you had a lot more confidence going into freelance this time around? Yes and no. I, as my sister, who is also a journalist, will tell you, um, because I rang her many, many times in that first month, there was this residual panic from the first time that I had done freelancing, which was, you know, that classic, the root of all your fears, which is, what if no one hires me? What if I don't earn any money? What if I have to take a job that I really don't want to because freelancing just doesn't work out, et cetera, et cetera. And, um, and she really helped guide me through a lot of that. So I think that having someone else there that can mitigate mm. some of that panic definitely did help. But I think what happened was I just gave myself a, th- a you know, a three month um, window in which I was going to look at what my output was, um, how happy I was doing freelancing mm. at the end of that three months. Because I think on average, freelancing does take about, you know, three to six months to, just set yourself up and get regular work in and and so on. And I think once that regular work started ticking in and I worked out, you know, how much I wanted um, to assign to doing regular work, how much of it was going to be creative, how much of it was just going to be, you know, really fun stuff that probably didn't pay much, but like was hugely rewarding. I think once I got that balance right, um, it just felt so much better. Like I think at that point when I realized that, 
that just taught me a very valuable lesson, which is as much as I'm scared that it will be the same as it was last time, all evidence to the contrary, it isn't the same yeah. as it was last time. Yeah. yeah, It sounds like you went in with a, quite a clear plan yeah. and a bit of a goal, because I think often people have gone freelance because they've like been made redundant or it's happened yeah. by accident or they couldn't find a job. And then you're in this slightly frantic state where you're like, yeah. how do I make this work? But it sounds like you kind of knew what you were doing. Well, yeah, because I guess the other thing, and this could be applicable to even if you are an entrepreneur, is you never know how much to take on. So, you know, when you are working in an office and you have a boss, yes, that, you know, sometimes sucks for different reasons because your time is not your own. You're um, answerable to someone else. However, you you do have that structure in place without you even having to mm. think about it. And I think one of my biggest problems or flaws that I'm aware of is that I just take too much on, which means that I just end up you know, working really late. However, what has happened in the last two months is that I've just really set up some strict boundaries on what I can and can't do. And very often, you know, saying no to things I don't really want to do, that's not actually the hard bit. It's more saying no to things that I really want to do. Like if mm -hmm. I get an idea and I want to pitch an editor and I know that that's the feature, I'm, I'm the right person to mm -hmm. write that feature. Yeah. But it's tough because I've obviously got such a heavy workload on that taking on the extra bit of work, however satisfying it's going to be, is just going to make me feel like I have no grasp on my on my work-life balance. Yeah. So actually kind of yeah. dampening down your ambition a little bit on how much you can do. Absolutely. Because you're like, I used to do that as a manager when someone would come up to me, someone that I manage and would say, I've just got too much on. And part of my role would be to try and work out where the pressure valve is for them But obviously, when you're freelancing, you have to be that person. Mm. Um, and so I think learning how to sometimes step outside of yourself, uh, which is not actually as easy as it sounds, mm. and just being able to say no to yourself that gets really excited and enthusiastic about things yeah. is possibly the biggest learning I've made in, in the last two months. Even what you said mm. that you did about how much of this that I want to do that's gonna, not going to make me loads of money but it's fun and how much of this that's going to make mm. me money. I've like never done that process and I've been yeah. freelance. I've only ever been freelance and actually just thinking about like about your soul and what you want out of life as well as just like what's going to pay the bills. I think that's such a healthy process yeah. to go through. Yeah, I mean it definitely was and that you know, I don't think I realized it at the time when I'm sitting in loads of meetings or had to go to something that at the time I just thought I don't really understand why I'm doing training for this or whatever. But it has really taught me the value of if you work for a company and training is being offered and just take it because you have no, you have no idea that further down the line, it's actually just going to kick in when you really need it in a situation where you just could never have anticipated, yeah. you know, that it, um, that it would. Because one massive thing that I used to do was forward planning. So where are you going to be in things like, you know, your Q1, Q2, and what is your next financial year going to look like? Now, I'm already trying to think of where I'm going to be next at the next tax year, next April, and what what that will allow me to do in terms of does it mean that I can take someone on, you know, part time, or does it mean that I can expand in different ways? And I think even if I don't end up doing it, I think it just gives me a really good goal to work towards mm. because I think otherwise you end up and this does seep into your creativity, unfortunately, stagnating slightly. And I think no business 
ever goes through year after year after year of not thinking about growth or not thinking about change. And I think that even if you're just one tiny person working away, mm. you know, in a flat somewhere, I think that those principles are still applicable. Definitely. Otherwise, you kind of lose your motivation. You start to fill with a bit of self-doubt of where's this all going and what am I doing? Did you find the transition from being in an office to like working from home and working for yourself quite quite weird? Did you Were you okay with it? I was actually anticipating that I would find it weird, but I actually really love it. I think it's a combination that I, anyone who has been to my home, and I don't think I'm biased by saying this, but I love my home. And it has, it's not even, you know, what the type of cushions are in there or what it looks like. It's just got an atmosphere that's very, very calming. And the minute I kind of go through that door, it just feels like I'm in a completely different space. Mm. And at first, I was a bit worried that if I also was working from there, that that would maybe change the space. But actually, it all it means is that I'm doing my work in a space that I find incredibly nurturing. Having said that, as wonderful as it is, um, I can't spend five days working in there straight because yeah. it's just not particularly healthy for me. So what I said to myself was that a couple of days a week, I will schedule meetings or I'll at least do half days in uh, town. And when I say in town, I live near Twickenham. So it's, yeah. you know, a bit of a schlep in, but it's great because it means that I'm not necessarily working directly in the environment of my flat. Um, and I'm also actually interacting with, sorry, humans. always, I always sound like such a hermit when I say this with human beings, yeah. but it, it does mean that that creates a really good balance. So as ridiculous as it sounds, when I now at the end of my working day today, when I get home, I'm going to be really glad that I'm home again mm, yeah just stepping out of it to come back in and yeah I find I spend a lot of time when I work from home fussing around my flat yeah. because I can't sit down to work until that sort and I've unloaded the dishwasher and everything I spend yes. half my morning just tidying so I can sit down and work and yes I do yeah it's hard I do I do exactly the same but I think that there is something really therapeutic about doing that and I think it just definitely I like if I know that there is a sink full of dishes it just I, I just know it's there and so mm. I'll just go and take care of of it. But I think that that is the same with if you think about, you know, working in an office, I really wouldn't want to sit at my desk surrounded by lots of different cups or bowls or whatever. So I think that that's just part of your daily maintenance. But generally, I mean, I love working in offices. I know some people absolutely hate it. And I do love it primarily because of the people that are in there. And I think that there is a dynamic and an interaction that you just don't get when you're working from home. However, I also know that I'm about 50% more productive working mm -hmm. at home than I ever was in an office, especially like the majority of our offices these days are open plan offices, yeah, which yeah. is just With like bizarre. an office playlist and yeah, because coffee that's, mornings it's and stuff. not a productive... I mean, I think it, the most recent data around it is that it shows that open plan offices are not a productive way to work. But mm. I don't think that's going to change anytime soon, unfortunately. Have you found anything else that's helped your productivity working for yourself? I think that taking myself off for a break in the afternoon. So I was very bad at doing this in an office in terms of having a lunch break. And I'd always be running around or doing something. And I'm even worse with that when I'm working from home, especially if I've got you know, quite a full workload to get through. But what I've discovered is I have to just force myself to do it. I have to about maybe 12, one o'clock in the afternoon, just listen, put a podcast on and just go for a walk in. I've got this massive park near my house. 
And even though for the first 10 minutes, I'm just, my brain is just in the overload and、mm. I'm just thinking, oh my God, I need to get back. There's so much work to do. What the hell are you doing going for a walk at this, you know, time of day? But by the time I've come back, there is just something really meditative about going for a walk where I'm not checking Instagram or Twitter or checking my emails and、mm. I can just come back to it and, and be far more productive than had I just thought, you know what, I'm just gonna, you know, I'm just gonna plow through. through. Yeah.、Mm-hmm. So, I think that that, it sounds counterintuitive to take time off, but actually I find that it's very helpful. Yeah. How, how long would you take for your walk? I would probably say an hour. I don't really feel comfortable, especially if I've got a lot of work on. I don't really feel comfortable taking on more than that. But then I would also say that in terms of productivity, what really helps is just, you know, keeping lists. Um, making sure that if there is anything that I've carried over to the following day, that it doesn't keep getting carried over once it's hit its、mm. third or fourth time that I've had to add it to a list. It's even if it means possibly setting some time aside, maybe getting up an hour earlier that I, I really think for me mentally, I need to be able to knock that off because that really stresses me out knowing that I've Got things on my list that are just like lingering away yeah, there. Yeah. yeah. Gotta think about things I've had on my list for like、yeah. six months. I'm like every day. Yeah. It's always things with taxes I find that I'm、yeah. just, I mean,、oh. I'll do that to one tomorrow, tomorrow. And then <laughs> six months later, my accountant's still like, still waiting on、yeah. that thing. So, t i n you tell me a little bit about your debut book came out this year?、Mm-hmm. Can you tell me a little bit about the book and the process of writing it? The book I actually wrote in 2016 while I was doing a full time job.、Uh, the Book was about, so it's a memoir about my life with my husband Rob. Rob、um, passed away three years ago and he suffered with chronic depression and also was dealing with addiction at the same time. And all of this stuff pretty much was going on when I was at work and doing quite a corporate job and basically had to juggle all of this stuff that was going on at home and then come into work and, you know. And be functioning and be not just functioning, actually, be really good at my job because, you know, in a corporation, for example, you work to an appraisal system and、mm. you have to just be at the top of your game when you work in a company like that. And I think after he passed away, there was a really big part of me that felt that I wanted to articulate what had happened. And, and he took his own life, which is a very, suicide is a very taboo death.、Mm. And I felt that I couldn't just plug myself back into work and pretend like nothing had happened because, because it is a taboo death. No one really wants to talk about it. No one really feels like they can ask you questions because they don't want to upset you. And for me, that, I think that was a turning point in terms of I can't do this anymore in terms of keep two really separate parts of my life、mm-hmm. and pretend in either each of them that I'm, I'm lying about something or I'm not really addressing something. And it also just struck me that Whatever company you work in, whatever job that you do, that lots of other people are going through, you know, really tough things、mm-hmm. that we have this office culture and we have this business culture where we encourage and aspire to perfection. And that's just not really how life is. And so I think for a lot of my, um, catharsis and working through the aftermath of his death. And also I just wanted to create awareness around the stuff that he had been going through、mm-hmm. and, To say that we have these very stigmatized views of what addiction is or what depression is or what suicide is, but actually this is what our life was like. And, you know, for a lot of it, it was a really beautiful relationship and we loved each other a lot. And this is who he was as a person, a very clever man who worked as a science journalist. 
And it was a very important thing that I was able to put that into writing because that was mm. the original school that I entered my industry in, and it gives gave, gave me and does give me a lot of comfort. And by doing that and by producing that book, the the point was also to say to other people, yes, this is what it's actually like. But also, by the way, if you're going through something similar or you know someone who's going through something similar, it's meant to be a book that gives you comfort in terms of its recognition and understanding that you're not alone mm. in any of these things that you might be going with. And mm. actually... It really changed a lot of my relationship. I was really scared because I thought, oh, you know, firstly, this is a lot of my life that I've kept very, very private. Mm. And I don't really know how th people are going to react to this. But I think like a lot of people will tell you who have who made that step and who have basically bridged that gap between their personal and their private life, especially when it comes to mental health, is that the reaction was amazing. Mm. And I learned a lot about the people that I worked with. So... I don't think it's something they ever would have felt comfortable saying in a meeting or, you know, necessarily being an activist or a campaigner themselves. But it was more the private messages of them being able to say, by the way, this actually happened in my own family or this is what my partner is going through. Mm -hmm. And I never I I just felt like I'd been granted this glimpse behind the curtain, you know, in that. Someone had trusted me with something that was deeply personal that they never would have felt comfortable talking about at work and had managed to tell me what was going on. And it just really opened my eyes to, I just think, how how much depth people have and how, you know, you go into work and someone's being really cranky or they're just being a bit mean to you and you think that they're just being mean to you. And, and you that, don't know. And you don't know. And understandably, I guess you just take it at face value. But what the most valuable thing I've taken away from that is when someone is behaving like that, I can guarantee you it's not about you. And it usually indicates that there's something much bigger going on with them. So actually what it ended up giving me was a lot more compassion, I think, for people. Mm. The process of it must, be a, it must be a very hard process to write the book. It was yes and no in that the role that I was doing at the time was it was managerial and also I was managing other writers. So I wasn't actually doing a lot of writing. And for me, my fundamental, the basic core of me as a person is that I use writing to relate to the world and also to explain how I'm feeling about things. And writing it actually gave so writing the book gave me that outlet that I wasn't really able to do in my day-to-day -day job so mm -hmm. what I did do in my day-to-day -day job was I created a platform and we had projects and special focuses around mental health and especially men's mental health and that was great but for me personally this was a project in which I could just be very very honest about what had happened but also just relive some like some of the most amazing things about our relationship and just remember him. And I think when I was writing it, which would have been about a year after he passed away, I was still grieving really heavily. So I was going to work and I was coming home and socializing a little bit, but not really capable of doing that much more than that. And the book gave me this amazing license to just go on weekends. Actually, sorry, guys, I can't really come out or I can't do this or mm. I can't do that because I need to be at home and I need to write. And so my structure and my schedule at home ended up being I would write on the weekends, I'd go for a run. It was very comforting and it was a very safe space to be. And by the time I'd finished writing the book, which I had to deliver fairly quickly in about four months, 
I just felt like this weight had been lifted a little bit and、mm. I was ready. By that point, I was ready to socialize a bit more and I was ready to actually, sounds really strange, but I was actually ready to start dating again after I'd finished the book. So there was definitely something immensely healing in writing、yeah. it, but it was, it was quite difficult sometimes to do this really two intense days of writing and then have to go into work. Yeah. On a Monday morning, <laughs> yeah, and pretend like nothing, you know, nothing had、yeah. happened. It sounds like the process of writing the book was quite cathartic, and it was like part of the grieving process in and of itself that you were、yeah. writing about these things and kind of getting them out. Yeah, I mean, I, without wanting to sound really facetious, someone said this really sweet thing, which was, "Oh, you know, it was really brave of you to write the book."、Uh, yes and no, because I mean, the word "brave" I, I just find quite difficult to. Process, but the just the bare fact of it is that I would not have written the book if I didn't feel like I could write it,、mm. or that it wasn't giving me comfort. If I had felt like it was making things harder or the grief harder, I just wouldn't have written it. Yeah. So that by some happy confluence of things, I just felt that I was able to. To write it and for that to be part of my grieving process. How do you think that your career focus changed after your husband's death? Do you think that anything changed in your head about what you wanted out of your career? I think that it wasn't so much that things changed because I know that some people, when they go through a bereavement, decide to either not go back to work again or just completely change their careers. And for me, going to work. And I went to work fairly soon after the funeral. This would have been about two and a half weeks, I think. And I didn't realize at the time that sometimes people take months to go back,、mm. but it just felt right and it felt better than being at home. So I, I figured out that that working and being at work gave me a sense of structure and it was a sense of comfort that really I really needed at a time when everything in my personal life was so messy. I think that if if it, If his death affected anything, it was that it's given me a much clearer understanding or an idea of what I want and what's working for me. So, for example, I know that I will never be the type of person again who will do a job where I'm deeply unhappy in it and I don't do anything to change that or to change、mm. that circumstance. And it's not so much of a simple as saying, "Well, his death has made me really." Recognize and re- and understand the value of life because I think I always understood the value of life, but it does make me think that there are various things like caring about what other people think about you. So, for example, let's say you have a a, a senior job or a job title, and giving that up means that you know people might not think you're as successful. I think that that's absolute nonsense because I think you are so much bigger than a job title when you look at the sum of your parts.、Mm. So I think that it's given me a very clear compass of the direction that I want to go in, and whether or not it came about as a result of his death, I could tell you instinctively things that I do and don't want to get involved in, and I don't even think my own mother could make me do something that I really don't want to do. I think I, I know myself very well now after、mm. his passing, and I think that that just comes about from having, yes, from having lost a lot. But also, I think that you just realise that time is really precious, and there is just no point wasting it on doing something that you don't want to do. Something that doesn't make you happy. Yeah, yeah. You strike me as someone who 
it doesn't have a huge amount of self-doubt. <laughs> you seem, to me, very confident. <laughs> well, I know either that, you're a fantastic actress. Um, you seem to be someone who's very confident and sure of themselves and sure of where they want to be career-wise. Do you think that just developed over time as you've worked longer in journalism and your confidence has built, been built up? Or did you kind of start like that? So I did not start like that. I, could, <laughs> I can definitely say that I did not start like that. And also, that's very kind of you. But like everyone else, there, trust me, there are definite moments mm. of self-doubt. But I would say that compared to when I was in my 20s, they are far and fewer in between because I just have more, literally by virtue of being older, I have more experience mm. to um, rely upon. However, the defining moment for me, which I would always recommend to other people, is when my career underwent a step change in 2014. And I went from working as a lifestyle editor for HuffPost to basically being deputy editor for the site, which was a leadership role. I was the most senior woman for Huffington Post. And that to me uh really at the time i just remember thinking oh my god this is just too much and i don't know how to do the job and so on but i had an amazing boss and i had an amazing mentor so ariana huffington was the one that gave me the promotion now looking back on that what that job taught me was actually confidence so the in terms of not just blagging it but asking for help. So if you didn't know how to do something, asking for help, um, un- taking every ounce of training that you could possibly take, but also going into going into a leadership role does for you really is that it you have to be confident when you are in uh, a meeting or when you are leading a team because there are lots of people looking to you to um, make a decision or, or have a calm head when people mm. are stressing out. And I think now, looking back on it, to answer your question about self-doubt, is that it's not so much that I think I will never get things wrong, because of course I get things wrong, um, you know, on a daily, if not weekly basis. But I think the the thing about it is about how you own that. So it's understanding and learning from when you get things wrong, rather than blaming someone else for the thing that didn't work out. And also just understanding that if you could, if you have managed to do something before, you can do it again. Mm. And for me, a really important part of that is to write down some of the things that I am really proud of, some of the things that I am, I'm, you know, I almost when I look back on it, I can't believe that I did it. But by proof of it, of me having done it, it should tell me that I can go into lots of other situations. So you wrote a book. I mean, that's huge. That's, <laughs> well, a, that's a massive thing. I've been trying to write you. one a million times over, and I, you get fast yeah. a certain word count. Even that in itself is enough. Yeah. I would be able to retire. Like, <laughs> I'm done. I'm so happy. Yeah, I mean, even I mean, even that. When I look back on it, and I just think. How did I, cause the, the second book, I had a much longer deadline and I remember freaking out, you know, around about the second month or third month of writing it, thinking there is no way I'm ever going to be able to finish it in time for the delivery day. And then I just sat myself down and I said, you wrote a book in four months and you did it when you had a full time yeah. job, which FYI, you don't have at the moment. So it's almost like, I think it's very important to look back on things that you have achieved. Mm as a touchstone for the fact that you can do them. And even if it's something that you have never tried before, 
just try it. I mean, the half half of my career has been trying things that I had no clue how to do, and either just failed at it spectacularly, or it actually went really well. And I was like, oh, great, okay. (laughs) Amazing. Is there anything, um, any advice that you could share for like the next generation of uh, young people going into journalism that you've learned throughout the course of your career about like how to make it in journalism or just kind of skills that you need? The main thing that I would say, and I've learned this from A, being a younger journalist and B, working in recruitment and by recruitment, I mean for HuffPost when we were recruiting a lot of people, mm. is that you will be given opportunities. And for some people, those opportunities may be uh, more in number than they are for some because, unfortunately, we have a system sometimes which is a bit nepotistic and it depends what school you went to, etc., etc. But those opportunities do sometimes come. And when they do, I would just say that throwing yourself into them and being enthusiastic really, really counts for a lot. And Mm. it's not to, I don't want this to sound too negative, but I have come across a few people, not people that I've directly worked with, but more um, when through the recruitment process, where they either haven't really looked at the website, or they don't really know why they want the job. And I think that having that idea of focus, and I guess, dedication to the to the place that you want to work Mm. for, is is really really crucial. I wouldn't do that thing where you just apply for a job because you know you just need a job. I mean sometimes yes of course you have to do that, but I would just say or let me amend that. If you are applying for a job because you really need a job, just make sure that you fake it to make it and mm. you just read every single thing about it and even if it's some trade magazine that looks at fishing that even if you don't fish, <laughs> you, <laughs> you pretend you, that you, you can know fish. your stuff. Yeah. yeah, exactly. So I and I would also just say that um you know, maybe like doing things in your own free time. So if if you can't really afford to do internships, which are unpaid, which is obviously a massive problem in the industry, because let's face it, who can work for months on end without any money? Mm. Um, just doing things like your own blog or curating your Instagram in a way that when someone else is looking at it and gets a feel of who you are and why you're really passionate and why you want to work in the industry, I think that people underestimate how much that can help. Thank you so much. You've been the most delightful guest Thank you. and the perfect season finale. I think I was told not to say season, but I've said it anyway. <laughs> You've been a season finale fantastic guest. If people would like to find out more about you and follow you, where, where do you exist online? I am at Pornabel on Instagram and Twitter. And I also have an imaginatively titled website, Pornabel.com. <laughs> Thank you so much. Mother's Day is around the corner. Find the perfect gift for the mom in your life with a stunning piece of jewelry from Blue Nile. From timeless pearls to dazzling gemstones, Blue Nile has something she'll adore. Need a fast? Most items can ship overnight. Plus, enjoy guaranteed free shipping and returns. Don't miss our special Mother's Day deals. Save big on the season's most beautiful trends. For a limited time, get up to 50% off by going to BlueNile.com. That's BlueNile.com. There's never been a faster or easier way to start your weight loss journey than with PlushCare. PlushCare accepts most insurance plans and gives you online access to board-certified physicians who can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wigovi and ZepBound for those who qualify. Take charge of your health and speak with a board-certified physician about a weight loss plan that's right for you. Get started today at PlushCare.com slash weight loss. That's PlushCare.com slash weight loss. 
plushcare.com slash weight loss. Millions of people have lost weight with personalized plans from Noom, like Evan, who can't stand salads and still lost 50 pounds. Salads generally for most people are the easy button, right? For me, that wasn't an option. I never really was a salad guy. That's just not who I am. But Noom worked for me. Get your personalized plan today at Noom.com. Real Noom user compensated to provide their story. In four weeks, the typical Noom user can expect to lose one to two pounds per week. Individual results may vary. Thank you so much for listening. I hope you enjoyed this episode. Um, Don't forget to subscribe, rate and review so more people can find the show. This is the end of this season, but we'll be back in the coming weeks. And if we've been inspired by this season and are thinking of starting our own creative project, then there's a home for you at Worklife and you can find out more at work.life. Candy Store production for Work Life, hosted by Angelica Malin and produced by Van Connor. T-shirt weather by Poddington Bear appears under Creative Commons 3.0 with podcast recording facilities in partnership with Work Life. Visit work.life for more information. You can find us at candystoreproductions.co.uk. Want flexibility? Take yoga. Want flexibility with your health insurance? Check out United Healthcare Insurance Plans. Underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, they offer flexible, budget-friendly medical, dental, and vision coverage that may be right for you. More at UH1.com. Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more and is all priced at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com pack for free shipping and 365-day returns.